welcome to Untapped Gold Mines. My name is CJ Depardine, and I am incredibly blessed and honored to have Dr. Timothy R. Clark here today on the show. So I'm going to share a little bit with you about Dr. Timothy Clark's background in history and from this point onwards, Tim has asked me to call him Tim. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert Please. that so that we're a little less formal. So Tim is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Tim ranks as a global authority in fields of senior executive development, strategy acceleration, and organizational change. He's the author of five books. You can find them all on Amazon. Epic Change, How to Lead in the Global Age, Leadership Phones, the employee engagement mindset, leading with character and competence, and the four stages of psychological safety, which is coming out on Tuesday. So I'm so excited for you that that is coming out, and it sounds like it's already picking up a lot of momentum based on our earlier conversation. Tim has written more than 150 articles on leadership, change, strategy, human capital, culture, and employee engagement. He is a highly sought-after advisor, coach, and facilitator to CEOs and senior leadership teams. Tim has worked with leading organizations around the world. His experience is extensive, that's for sure. Uh, he was previously president and CEO of Decker, a consulting firm based in San Francisco. What a wonderful place San Francisco is, huh? <laughs> nice weather. Right? CEO of Novations SDC, a consulting and training firm based in Boston. And prior to these assignments, Tim spent several years in manufacturing, serving as vice president of operations and plant manager of Geneva Steel Company. He began his career as a survey research project director for what is now Harris Interactive in Washington, D.C. Also notable, you earned your doctorate degree in social science from Oxford University, was both a Fulbright and British research scholar. And I feel so honored to have you on this show for all of your background and experience. I'm so grateful. Tell me a little bit, before we get into too many details of your book, which is really the primary focus of today because your book is so important, but what inspired you to get on this personal journey, this professional journey? That's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I guess CJ, it was an accident. Like ah, most people. Right. Right. I mean, I went to school to be a professor. That's what I wanted to do. And so I could visualize my life as a academic, you know, cozy life nestled into this academic life teaching, but it didn't work out that way. Um, when we came back from Oxford, we were poor graduate students and I hadn't quite finished my research. So I had to get a job and that's what took me into business. And I never recovered. I was, I, I was never able to get back into academia full-time, just, just a little bit part-time, but I'm grateful for that because I consider myself a teacher anyway. I just mm -hmm. teach practitioners. I teach people who are in the trenches. I teach people who have to get results. I teach people who lead and manage other people. And so really, I, in a sense, I haven't drifted far from my original intent, which was to teach. And that's how, that's why the way I look at myself. Right. Excellent. So when you say you are teaching, what comes to mind as the, the biggest lessons that you're teaching your audience? One of the biggest lessons is that we are teaching leaders and managers to recognize patterns. We're teaching them that a big part of leadership is to be in the pattern recognition business. 
because what we hope and what we expect is that you get better over time. Right. If you're not getting better over time, you're not paying attention or you're not paying attention well enough. So what we have streams of data that are coming at us as we're working in organizations every day, as we're interacting with people, quantitative data, qualitative data, anecdotal data, impressionistic data, it's all coming every day. So we have to pay attention to that, interpret that, and then respond to that. And that's a, that's, that's such a blessing that, that comes to us. But are we making connections? Are we seeing cause and effect relationships? Do we see patterns? Because out of all of it, we should be able to say, this works and this doesn't work. So I'm going to keep doing what works and I'm going to stop doing what doesn't work. Right. But a lot of people don't do that and they keep doing things that don't work. They keep, they persist in patterns that are not effective. Right. So back to your original question, CJ, I think part of what, what I try to do is help equip people with the tools and the skills and the confidence to be able to interpret what's going on based on the data that surrounds them and then to make improvements to be able to self-diagnose and self-correct and move forward, getting better, because over time they should be getting better. But uh, that's not always true, right. but that's, that's the hope and the anticipation that they're getting better over time. That's, that's how I see my, my job and my role. Right. How does that work with a leader who has like 150 to 300 people under their roster? Because it's a little more difficult when you've got masses under you versus your team of, you know, five to 25, the dynamics different. So how do you help, you know, the, the differing scales of these leaders find these patterns? I think a good way to think about that is to think about the natural progression of leadership as it moves through three domains. So we begin with leading yourself, right? That's where we always have to start. Can you lead yourself? If you can lead yourself, then you can build a platform of skills, experience, and credibility. And then we move to the second domain, which is to lead a team. Mm -hmm. That's a big transition because when you're leading yourself, you're an individual contributor and and that's your foundation and you need to be able to do that well. You need skills and you need self-discipline and you need self-awareness. Then... It's time to lead a team. Well, the nature of your contribution shifts and now you're contributing indirectly more than directly. So that's a big shift. You need, there's a psychological transition that has to accompany that because now you have to be able to find satisfaction in the performance and the results of others. Mm -hmm. You have to rejoice in the success of other people. And if you can't do that, right, if, if, if you're insecure, if you're resentful, if you if you can't really find deep and lasting satisfaction, you're going to struggle. So that's domain. That's the second domain leads the team. Your question hits on the third domain, which is leads the business or leads the institution or leads the organization. Right. That is all about scalability. So right. the question that we then ask at that point is, are you scalable? So now that brings in some, some different skill sets. You have to be able to think at a systems level. Right. That's different. You have to be able to scale your influence and your impact as you're trying to optimize the whole rather than sub-optimize the whole and optimize a part of the whole. 
So you really have to be able to get up in your hot air balloon, see the big picture, and realize where your leverage is. So right. leadership really in many ways is the organizational study of the concept of leverage. Mm. Leverage is the multiplication of force. Right. So if, you're, if you've moved up to a more of a senior leadership position, you have, to, you have to think in terms of scale and leverage. Right. And that's not easy. I mean, we could talk about that all day, right. but I'm just framing it. I'm just framing it. That's the quest of a professional lifetime is to, is to figure out how to do that well. And you hit on something in the very beginning with that first stage, and that was self-leadership and finding <clears throat> this even sense of safety within yourself, within your own ability to lead um, your function, whatever it is. And then you have that ripple effect onto team and then another ripple effect onto org. So let's talk about how that shows up in your upcoming book, Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Can you expect leaders from every level, right? So that leader that has, you know, a, a team of one or team of none all the way up to a team of 150 or 300 to be able to gain value from this book and, and tap into some of these mechanisms that you put forward for psychological safety? I hope so. I hope so. And the reason I say that, CJ, is because the concept of psychological safety is a universal concept. And, and your requirement to contribute to the psychological safety of your colleagues and your organization is agnostic of role. It right. doesn't matter if you're an individual contributor or a manager or an executive. It doesn't matter what function you're in. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It's agnostic to that. It's a universal concept that acknowledges human needs and the inherent human needs that we have to flourish and be successful in any social unit. It, it, it doesn't matter what your role is and it doesn't even matter what the social unit is. So the application is universal. Right. With that being said, the application being universal, you've got four stages of psychological safety listed in this book. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that first one, inclusion safety. What does that mean to you and how is that going to impact leaders who get a hold of this book on Tuesday? Sure. So inclusion safety, as you said, CJ, it's the foundation. Mm -hmm. It's stage one. Inclusion safety means, in very simple terms, it's not expensive to be yourself. Right. So let, let me, let's talk about that for a minute. Inclusion safety, inclusion safety taps in and satisfies the basic human need to be accepted, to belong, to fit in. And if you watch, and, and for all the listeners out there, let, let me give you a lens. So today, or whenever you hear this, Go out, and for the rest of the day, you're going to go from social setting to social setting to social setting. Watch people carefully, and you'll notice that people want to be a part of the social unit. They want to fit in. They want to belong. We long to belong. So inclusion safety is giving them the safety and the protection to be themselves, to find association with you, to allow them to come into your society without fear of what? Being embarrassed, being marginalized, being punished in some way. Right. So the 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 need to be the, the need to belong, the need to be accepted 
precedes the need to be heard. So that this is why it's the foundation. It, it is the foundation of any healthy organization, any social unit, anywhere. Inclusion safety is your first step. Right. I want to acknowledge the incredible importance of that in tandem with diversity and inclusion initiatives today mm-hmm. in many of these organizations because we're, we've gotten to that place where we recognize as organizations that we have a responsibility to be inclusive. And we have a responsibility to teach everybody in our organization what inclusivity looks like and at what levels. And that starts with really understanding diversity. When you talk about inclusion safety, what sort of mechanisms can leaders find in your book that help them through this part? Okay. Well, let's let, let me back up a little bit, CJ, and let's let's say this. So the requirement of inclusion safety is a moral responsibility. Right. It's a moral responsibility based on the fact that we are members of the same human species. There's a requirement that we invite each other into our respective societies. The only the only exception to that rule is the threat of harm. That's it. Mm. It's just the threat of harm. If you possess flesh and blood, I accept you. There's right. no way I can justify marginalizing you. Right. So one of the principles that we need to remind ourselves of is that worth precedes worthiness. Mm. We're not talking about worthiness. We're not talking about, are you really good at what you do? We're not talking about making judgments of your character. We're not talking about your skills and your performance and your competence. We're talking about worth. Right. Worthiness comes later. Right. So worth precedes worthiness. Inclusion safety is based on the fact that, that inclusion is a basic human need and a basic human right. And that we owe that to each other. It's not something you earn. It's something that you're owed. Right. And so this is where we can justifiably talk about entitlement. We are entitled to that from each right. other. So that's the way that I think about it. I love that statement because the word entitlement has been kind of thrown out that's over right. the, the last five years or so. It's very distorted. It is very distorted. And we're putting it, I, I believe wrongfully so, on like the millennial generation that they're mm-hmm. entitled. I'd love this to be a moment where we can say, let's not attach it to a particular group. <clears throat> let's recognize that everybody is entitled. Millennials may just be a little bit more conscious and aware, and they're allowing us the opportunity to see it more than we might have before. Right, right. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And once we go beyond inclusion, then we're going to have all kinds of arguments about what maybe you're entitled to or not entitled right. to, but we don't have to. We don't have to have that argument. We're just right. talking about the need and the right to be included. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let me make one more point. It's very important. Sure. One of the major forces at work that is driving this momentum on behalf of psychological safety, pushing psychological safety. One of the one of the forces is simply the moral force, the ethical force that says, you know what. For years and years and years in organizations and social units of every kind, we have been accepting unacceptable behavior. We right. have normalized, in many cases, abusive behavior. 
bullying, harassment, public shaming, manipulation, uh, soft forms of coercion. We have normalized that in organizations. And that means that we come to the point where we accept that. And I know that because I worked in heavy manufacturing for several years early in my career. It was amazing what people would put up with. And they said, you know what they would say, Tim, uh, that's just the way that we do things here. If you want to be a part of this industry, you need to understand that these are the terms of engagement. This is how we do business. This is how we, this is how this industry operates. That's rubbish, but that's what we've been putting up with. We have normalized unacceptable, intolerable behavior. And so I think what's finally happened is that there's this inflection point, there's this tipping point, and, and millennials are driving a lot of it. And they're saying, whoa, 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 time out, time out. You know what? You may be a baby boomer or a Gen X or whatever, and you may have put up with that, but I'm sorry, time out. I'm not doing that. Right. I'm not doing that. Yeah. So just so you know, I, I don't know what kind of crazy soothing stories you guys have been telling yourselves for generations, but we're not doing that. I'm not doing that. That's what's starting to happen. I love it. Yeah. And it's it's a fantastic thing, but I think we've got a lot of work to do in some organizations because that moment where that individual says, no, this is not right and I don't need to do this is a pivotal moment for an organization to say, well, wait a second, instead of letting you go, or letting you kind of retreat and and not participate at, at your best here. How can we have the conversation with you to find out where we can do things differently? Right? Like I think it's a really important conversation to have. And I have I've seen it happen, you know, in some places, and then I've seen it not happen at all. And where, you know, leadership has been, oh, well, that's how this person is, or oh, we don't have enough information, you know, or or evidence in front of us to say that this is going on. But the reality is if somebody is speaking up and saying, hey, this is something that's wrong, I think we need to listen, right? And I think that's the basis of this concept of inclusion and inclusion safety, I would say, by the sounds of what you're saying. I think so. And I think as you look around, you'll see organizations that have had an awakening. Right. And they realize, you know what? We've been governing ourselves, as I say in the book, with junk theories of superiority. Mm. Right. These are false theories that try to justify divisions and these false notions of superiority that are just rubbish. Right. And and we've been governing our societies based on these theories for centuries. And so what we're finding now, as you say, some organizations have had a profound awakening. Mm-hmm. Others are not, they're not there yet. Right. And they're struggling and they're right in the middle of, a, of an internal battle. Right. To try and figure this out. Right. right. That's, that's what we're seeing right now. We're right in the middle of this where some have taken a very clear point of view and they've said, this is so clear and this is where we need to go. And inclusion safety as, as stage one is, it truly is a basic human need and right. And others are still, they're still fighting. They're still fighting themselves. They're still struggling. They're wrestling with it because they have to disabuse themselves of what they've the assumptions and the beliefs of the past, and that's not easy. Right. So we're kind of right in the middle of that turmoil. Right. But what a beautiful time for you to release a book like this. I hope the timing is good. <laughs> right. I hope so. 
So let's talk about the next stage in your book, which is learner safety. Right. So learner safety, uh, as you say, it's the second stage. So the foundation is inclusion safety. Then we add learner safety. Learner safety means that I feel safe, that I can engage in all aspects of the learning process. So what does that mean? That means I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can experiment. I can even make mistakes. Now, if you think about it, it's one thing to be included, but it's another thing to be able to learn without fear when I, when I engage in these things. Now, here's what happens. And I would ask all the listeners out there, I want you to think about this from a personal standpoint. When you've engaged in the learning process, if someone responded to you and they shut you down, or they didn't give you the safety to do those things, what does that do? It triggers, it triggers what we call, it activates what we call the self-censoring instinct. And every human has one. So it's not safe to learn. You're gonna, what are you gonna do? You're gonna retreat, you're gonna recoil, and you're going to manage personal risk because learning, learning includes personal vulnerability. Absolutely. Right? We all bring some inhibition and some anxiety to the learning process. We all have fears. We all have insecurities about our ability to learn. Right. And that's natural. And so if in that process, we already know that we're exposing ourselves to a higher level of vulnerability. So if in that process, we someone pushes the fear button and triggers our self-censoring instinct, then guess what? We're not going to learn nearly as effectively, nearly as quickly as we could or we should. And so learner safety brings it to the next level. And what is it that creates that psychological safety at that that increased level. It's a combination of respect and permission. Mm. It's the intersection of those two things that produces a given level of psychological safety. Right. The respect, the level of respect that you feel and the level of permission to participate that you feel in the environment, that's what gives you a given level of psychological safety. Right. So and I learner safety. I would imagine if we think about these digital transformations and these organizations that are, you know, adopting agile mindset or agile methodologies, there's a lot of learning that is inherent with going agile. Uh, you have to learn how to, what agile even means if you're not already inherently agile, but you then also have to get into a, a world of experimentation, which is rooted in learning what works and what doesn't work before you spend six months to 18 months building something that is no longer relevant, right? So I think learning safety is critical in these types of organizations as well, because we're, we're trying to enable self-organizing teams that have that right to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's right. I think, I think your point is, is, uh, is a brilliant point because you can have all the tools, you can have the, all of the methodologies, you can have uh, everything that you need to go agile, but if you don't have the enabling culture, mm -hmm. the enabling culture that allows people to be safe in their vulnerability of learning, it's not going to happen. Right. You could be exquisitely blessed with all of the other resources and the training and the tools and the software and 
everything that you could ever ask for, but you still are missing the most important piece. And that is the human beings that are willing to learn in a collaborative way and expose themselves to that kind of risk that comes with learning. If right. you don't have that, you can't get there. Right. And I mean, I've seen how fast paced agile can make an organization and its teams. And so if we're expecting learning to take place through experimentation, but yet you're doing it in two week sprints and then you're on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. And along with that, there's a lot of change because agile in itself is a change mechanism. You know, you're, you're hit twice as an individual with like this speed that will never be as slow again, but yet is extremely fast for most of us today. And you're hit with change fatigue. As a human being, it's natural to want to retreat and just like slow down and say, I don't understand what's happening here. And I need to feel a little bit more safe before I can, before I can actually like make my next move. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So I think it's quite critical. So then that, that leads me to the next move, which is contributor safety. That's your next stage. So tell me a little bit more about, or tell our listeners a little bit more about contributor safety. How does this play into this? Contributor safety is stage three. And contributor safety says that I now feel safe to be able to contribute as a full-fledged member of the team to make a difference. Now, if you think about the sequence of of human need, we, we, we want to learn and grow. Once we learn and grow, the natural tent, the natural desire is to want to use what we have learned to apply what we have learned. And so human beings want to make a difference. Uh, They and they want autonomy in making a difference as much as they can. They want guidance, they want support, they want resources but they want some autonomy. They want some self-determination as they make a difference. So there's a deep yearning need that we have to make a difference, to contribute. So that's what contributor safety is. It's look, look at everything that I've learned. Let's go, let's go make a difference. Let's, let's be a part of this. Let's make something happen. They want to find meaning and purpose in their work and they want to make a meaningful contribution. So that's what stage three is. And again, it takes, it takes a higher level of psychological safety in order to feel safe doing that because, again, your personal exposure has gone to another level. And depending on the speed at which you're moving, that adds extra dynamics to the situation as well. So sometimes we need to slow down to think about how we can create that safety in each of these stages, but sometimes we actually have to just be very mindful to what you said in the beginning, which is the patterns that are taking place in front of us every moment. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that you said that, you know, as, as a leader, we kind of need to put pattern recognition in our DNA because we have to be able to see this. And I think the, the more departed you are from your teams, even though we're trying to create this world where everybody can be autonomous and teams can be self-organized and feel great about the decisions that they're making, the leader still needs to be involved. It doesn't mean that we're hands off as leaders, right? That's right. No, you're not hands off because people still need guidance and direction and encouragement and vision. So then let's use this segue to talk about challenger safety because we need to be able to challenge leaders with their strategy and their decisions and maybe their lack of presence, right? 
and now they're coming in and saying, well, we need to do this, but wait, you haven't been here. Um, and we also need to be able to challenge our peers and our team members. Right. And we need to be able to say, like, I think we should consider this instead and feel safe doing that. So tell us a little bit about how you see challenger safety and how you're helping organizations kind of tackle this part of it. Cause it's a tough one. This is at the top of your pyramid here. This is the top. This is, this is the fun part. This is the right. fascinating part. So stage four is what we call, as you say, challenger safety. Challenger safety means that you feel safe in being able to challenge the status quo. Right. Now I want you to, I want all the listeners out there to think about what this requires. It's one thing to be included. It's another thing to learn. It's another thing to contribute. But now we're talking about challenging, challenging the way that we do things, challenging the status quo. That is a different kind of request. Challenging this, the status quo is the ultimate and culminating stage of psychological safety because in order to challenge the status quo, you're at the highest possible level of personal vulnerability. Right. right? You're taking a shot at, at the status quo. To do that, to challenge the status quo, that's a very, very, that's a risky thing to do because the status quo in organizations, as we know, the status quo, we come to cherish the status quo. The status quo becomes fossilized. It becomes calcified. It's what we do. It's what we know. It's what we love. Oh. And now you're going to come around and you're going to say, uh, we, we shouldn't be doing this. Or have you thought about this? Or you're challenging that. That, that is disruptive. It is, it's subversive. You are undermining what we're doing. So think about the nature of what it takes to challenge the status quo. So what we say then is if your organization depends on innovation to survive, you have to have challenger safety because innovation, think about this, innovation by its very nature is disruptive of the status quo. You cannot innovate unless you first disrupt the status quo. So to go from stage three contributor safety to stage four challenger safety, you have to cross over what we call the innovation threshold. And the organization is now giving you a license to innovate. Right. That's where we innovate. You cannot, you cannot innovate on an ongoing basis unless you have challenger safety. Challenger safety becomes that lubricating oil that allows constructive dissent. Right. It allows, it allows that, that uh, creative abrasion that you need. You need ideas that are colliding and rubbing against each other. You need this tolerance for candor that's at a completely different level. Yep. That's what we're talking about. So this is a, it's an interesting question. Simply think about your, your team, your organization, and ask yourself, do you have challenger safety? And I'll bet you can, you, you know the answer to that, right? How do you right. personally feel when you go to work every day? Do you feel challenger safe? Do you feel supported and protected in your efforts to challenge the status quo? Can you do that? Right. So, you know, we know, but that's what it means. It's the pinnacle. Right. And I might encourage listeners as well. You, you bring up such a great point because I'm usually the challenger in the room. And I often leave the room feeling like I've kind of upset a bunch of people and I'll just keep going at it, but with respect and whatnot. But at some point I'll concede, right? Mm -hmm. If that 
message is not received well or whatever, but I'd love to flip this on its head for just a moment and inquire about creating safety for the challengers in the room. Because even if you yourself are not comfortable challenging the status quo, what is your responsibility to support those who do need that safety? And do you address this in your book at all? Yes, very much so. What has to happen, so think about it this way. In order to create challenger safety, that highest level, there are two things that have to happen simultaneously on the team. Number one, you've got to increase intellectual friction. Mm. So that is very, this is the constructive force. So the intellectual friction, this, this hard hitting dialogue, this contest of ideas, that has to go higher. So the intellectual friction has to go higher. At the same time, the social friction has to go lower. Mm. So you got to think about that for a minute. The social friction is the destructive force. The intellectual friction is the, is the constructive force. Right. It's when social friction gets high that it paralyzes us and it shuts down the process. And why is that? Because as human beings, we're sensitive. Right. At the end of every suggestion or point of view or opinion is a human being and we're very sensitive. And so it's very easy for us to get into conflict. That is social friction. The way to conceptualize this, I need higher intellectual friction. I need lower social friction. Every person on that team has to contribute to that kind of working environment. Right. So how do you do that? Well, you have to establish terms of engagement that are very clear. One is there can be no personal attacks of any kind. It's, it's off limits. It's right. out of bounds. So there has to be civil, courteous, respectful behavior, even though there's hard hitting dialogue. If you can maintain a high level of intellectual friction and a low level of social friction at the same time, your team is world class. Mm-hmm. That is the mark. That is the lead indicator of a healthy, vibrant, world class team. And after 25 years, of studying organizational culture and team performance, that is the that is your leading indicator, is just to watch the interpersonal dynamic and look at the intellectual friction and the social friction. What's happening? I mean, it's so beautiful. And I'm curious to know, you know, what the role of the leader is in that then. If 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 they know that that is that North Star and they want their teams to be in that place, how important is screening? For psychological safety when it comes to promoting people into those management or leadership positions because it sounds to me from what you're saying that the leader needs it themselves and they need to know how to create it and enable and nurture it within the teams until the teams are really truly there well i think what we're seeing cj is such an interesting inflection point right now we're seeing organizations well some of which have now incorporated psychological safety as a selection criterion for promotion to management right what they're saying is you need a demonstrated track record of being able to create psychological safety. And if you have that track record, if we can see evidence that you do that, then you're eligible along with the other requirements, but you're now eligible to become a manager or to become a team leader. But if you don't have that track record, then you're, you're not eligible, right? You're disqualified. It's that critical. Wow. 
it's that critical because if, if you don't have the demonstrated ability to create psychological safety for a team, how in the world are you going to be able to lead that team successfully? You can't do it. So the first thing that we're seeing, and it's, it's, it's growing, uh, we're seeing it within client organizations that we work with, where they are incorporating that into the selection process. Mm. So that, that's what organizations are doing from a process standpoint, from a succession planning standpoint, from an upward mobility standpoint. We're seeing that. Right. So that's, that's, that's exciting. Right. And I know that you have assessments for teams mm -hmm. to address where they are with their psychological safety. Do you also have like assessment mechanisms of some sort for leaders when they're looking to assess for this type of psychological safety enablement in future managers? We do. Now here's the connection. This is very interesting. I'm glad you asked that question. There are two streams of research that have come together in the last two years in a remarkable way. The first stream of research is psychological safety, what we've been talking about. The second stream of research is the research on emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. These have now come together because what the empirical studies are showing us is that emotional intelligence is your primary enabling skill for creating psychological safety. So if the leader needs to work on his or her ability to nurture and foster that, then he or she needs to work on emotional intelligence. That's the primary enabling skill. So yes, we have a we have a world-class platform called EQometer, which is for the individual to assess his or her emotional intelligence. So the unit of analysis is the individual. And then we move to the team and then we can measure psychological safety at a team level because psychological safety is a group or a team or a social unit level phenomenon. Emotional right. intelligence is an individual unit phenomenon. Right. Okay. So you've got some amazing tools. You have this fantastic book coming out. I promise I will add all these links to any references to our conversation today, as well as underneath the podcast release where people can access it. And um, wherever I publish any of our conversation today. And I certainly encourage and, and hope that people will take that encouragement to go and actually use these assessments. Cause I think it's really, really important. I haven't heard so far and maybe I'm naive and I just haven't been looking far enough, but I haven't heard of too many tools that really assess the psychological safety levels within teams. So I think this is something really valuable that you bring to the table on top of these four stages of safety that are absolutely critical and I can see how beautifully they stack upon each other and I can see how long the journey might be for some and how <laughs> short the journey might be for some. So what else before we end our time together today, what else needs to be heard about psychological safety? What are those kind of final words? If you, if you could say, if you only do this one thing or if you are going to tackle psychological safety or start tackling psychological safety. This is what you need to know today. What, what are those words? Well, I would, we could talk about several things, but let me say one that comes to mind CJ that I think is very important. And that is that for all of your listeners out there, I think we need to be aware that as, as the millennials, as a cohort are pouring into the workforce, and then we have Gen Z on their tails, the profile 
and the desires and the expectations of these folks as they're, as they're coming in, these huge demographic cohorts as they're spilling into the workforce, they have an expectation that they want to come into an environment, a workplace environment, a culture where they can thrive, where they can develop, where they can do their very best work, where they can have peak engagement experiences, where they can have career best experiences. In other words, they expect psychological safety. Right. They they expect it. And and so what does that mean? That means that if the organization is not prepared to provide that, that in time you your organization will bleed out your best talent. You're going to bleed it out. Right. I want you to I I would I would urge the listeners to think about this from a human capital standpoint. If you're not providing this, your your most talented people, they're going to walk they're going right. to say adios because they have a lot to contribute. They're anxious to contribute and learn and grow and develop. And this is a game changer for them. This right. is uh, this is something that they absolutely need to have. So I would I would encourage all of us to think about that. Think about the implications of that. And are we creating and nurturing and sustaining high levels of psychological safety in our organizations, because this is where we're going. Now, here's the other part. The other part is that the competitive forces at work in most industries today are unrelenting. They're unforgiving. So what does that mean? In order to survive, you have to innovate. In order to innovate, you have to be able to provide psychological safety at the very highest level. Right. And so the implication is, uh, what what are, are we doing this? And even if even if you were socialized in a different time in a different place, and you are begrudgingly coming to this place, you have to acknowledge that you're not going to survive. You're galloping your way to extinction if you do not provide an environment where your people can innovate, where they can have that constructive dissent and that creative abrasion. So whether you're a true believer or not, the competitive environment will, sooner or later, it will humble you and you will be constrained to acknowledge that, you know what, we need psychological safety in this organization so that we can innovate. So I guess two sides to it, CJ. I love that. Thank you so much for that. And I'm curious to know, uh, because this is a podcast webinar series on untapped gold mines. What can organizations and leaders and teams and individuals expect to see being unleashed when this psychological safety comes here? You've spoken a lot about innovation. What else is there? There's tons of benefits, I'm sure, of having psychological safety. So what are the greatest untapped gold mines that you've seen when teams do get to that place? You'll see changes in several metrics, beginning with engagement. So think about the things that we measure in organizations. So engagement scores go to another level. Retention scores go to another level. And you'll see it, as I said, a velocity of innovation going to an order of magnitude that we haven't even seen before. So I think I think that we're on the frontier of understanding what is possible. And I think we're going to see some teams and some organizations that are just outperforming. They're, they're, they're just thriving and they're moving with such velocity and their people are thriving. They're so much better than their rivals in some cases that we're going to we're going to look at them and say wow so that's what's possible i think i'm getting it and so connected to that here's a parting thought for leaders cj leadership has very little to do with title position and authority absolutely it's about the way you influence people yeah 
And so what I would leave your listeners with is this simple thought to lead as if you have no power. Mm. If you think of it that way, if that's your paradigm, then that gets you to focus on influence, just influence and creating psychological safety because you set the tone. And what we do know about organizational culture is the single most important factor in the formation of culture is the modeling behavior of the leader. We know that. It's Newtonian physics applied to organizations. If there's anything that is as close to a law as we have in organizational behavior, that's it. It's the Mm -hmm. modeling behavior of a leader. So I would urge your listeners to, to ponder on. I love it. Excellent words. Perfect finish. We're not going to top that in the next two minutes. I thank you so very much for your time. I, uh, as promised, I will put as many references to this wonderful gold that you've shared today in uh, your page on the website and below the podcast links and anywhere else that uh, this gets published. Uh, For listeners that want to learn more about you and where they can see you, where they might be able to reach out to you and actually bring you into their fold, because I understand that you consult and you support organizations and you do keynotes as well. Where might they be able to find you? So, Number one, go to our website, leaderfactor.com. And then number two, if you go to the website, you can access our four stages of psychological safety behavioral guide, which is Mm. a supplement to the book. And it's free. It's a PDF download. And it's a very substantial resource that gives you the concrete behavioral how-to steps for each of the four stages. So that's available on the website, free. It's a significant resource. Talk about gold. Well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. And that ends this segment today for our listeners. And I thank you all very much for your time and attention. Please leave comments where you see this or hear this. Please reach out to Dr. Timothy Clark and get that book and get that guide and start taking action on creating a better world of psychological safety in your organizations tomorrow. Please also remember all of this content will be available to you on untappedgoldmines.com. I do appreciate your visits there and your ongoing attention. I hope this has been of value to you. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day.